Hey everyone, this is Season 3, Episode 5 of Guards of Eden. Today's guest is Anna Cordrado. Anna co-hosts a podcast that I really love, which is called Is This Working? And it's with her friend Tiffany Philippou. But she's also done this amazing work in the freelance world. Anna's background is journalism. She wrote for companies such as The Guardian and Vice before transitioning into freelance. But when she did get into this industry, she ended up writing an open letter which was extremely powerful. It called upon the industry to change the practices that they were using with freelancers and it also ended up leading to a community which is called the professional freelancer that Anna founded. It looks to give people advice and guidance and support and help them along in their career. So of course we covered that and where that passion was born from but we also cover Anna's story and I think the one thing you see almost immediately is my profound respect for Anna but I think the whole episode is so symbolic of this beautiful blend that she has in terms of intellect, creativity, kindness and passion and it's a story that I'm extremely grateful to be able to share. So before we do get into the episode, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcast, it'd be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast but if you're just listening in general and you feel like someone would benefit from listening to this episode, it'd be amazing if you could share it with someone and also reach out to Anna and share the love there because I want to celebrate these amazing people and I feel like that we can build the platform that way and continue to celebrate everyone. So that would mean a whole bunch. But without further ado, three, two, one, let's go. Hey Anna, how are you doing? Hi, I'm great, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. No, 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 thank you. I, um, I'm going to confess something before we even get into the questions. It's happened one other time. I was a fan of yours from afar with everything that you and Tiff have done with Is This Working and knowing loosely kind of what you've done for freelance journalism. And, and as I've done more research, I became more of a fan. So there is a slight intimidation on my part. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. <laughs> I'm so I'm quite I'm so flattered to hear that. Um, I, I feel like such a kind of nobody who just operates in obscurity so there's no absolutely no reason to kind of feel like that but thank you very flattering no problem it's um yeah because I'm obviously trying to learn someone's journey so I can ask you know better questions as you know well very well but um yeah I was like oh god I'm starting to get nervous now why have I done this (laughs) (laughs) to get our first question going can you give me a song that reminds you of a happy memory or a good time in your life well, I actually have quite a long-standing relationship with music, and there are so many songs that would fit that answer for you. But I'm going to give a bit of a backhanded answer, I suppose. Oh, okay. Um, so the song that I want to kind of mention is Fleetwood Mac's Secondhand News, ah. because that, well, actually, the whole Rumours album is something that um, I have really bad fear of flying. And every time I fly and start to feel really, really anxious, I listen to that album and it's the only thing that calms me down on a flight. Um, And it's kind of become my go-to album Um, and especially that song because I'm pretty sure it's the first song on the album. Um, Once I hear it, it kind of starts triggering this sort of feeling in me of calming down and it's my own kind of personal sort of anxiety relief so yeah I kind of that that's my pick I think rather than one that um otherwise I can list off a whole bunch of other songs which actually remind me of very specific times and places but this is 
a constant and some a song that really brings a feeling of calm when I really need it. Oh, I love it. So that's going to live on, yeah, the Spotify playlist, which is the Gods of Eden soundtrack. So that's your entry for it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Let's start at the very beginning. How was early life for Anna? And how do you remember your childhood? I remember my childhood very fondly. Um, so I'm an only child. And oh, me um, too. much of my childhood memories, I suppose, only really involved me, um, as self-centered as that sounds. <laughs> but um, no, I had I had a really ch- happy childhood. I spent quite a lot of time with my grandparents when I was younger. And so my family um, moved to the UK from Romania when I was about one and a half. So we don't really have any family here. Okay. Um, so I spent quite a lot of time with my grandparents. And yeah, really kind of happy childhood I was I'm one of those people who quite enjoyed school I mean to kind of you know as much as a kid can enjoy school but um I really enjoyed my time at school and yeah sort of if I sort of think back especially you know rear path you kind of I do reflect back on my childhood and I do think about how there are various points when I was either writing a lot so I have quite a lot of memories of writing short stories in my grandparents living room but I also have quite a lot of memories of doing sort of mini entrepreneurial projects so I when we got a computer when I was I don't know it was in primary school and I remember I had a really good friend and we decided to make a magazine so we made this magazine in word and i remember we used lots of word art and like Mm. clip art fonts and images and stuff like that and we printed out these magazines um stapled them together and then posted them through the neighbor's letterboxes so Mm. kind of there's always been a theme of either writing and or entrepreneurialism i think throughout like my childhood uh which i think is really interesting to think about considering sort of the career path that i've ended up taking yeah, and providing a newsletter that I really love, and it comes in my my version of a letterbox in an email. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you spoke about your grandparents. Sorry if I get your granddad's name wrong, but is it your Yorgi? Um, well, so it's that kind of translates to George. Yeah, you can you know yeah he, he if he's talking to not that he speaks English, but he um, it's kind of George basically. Yeah, okay. That is the I'll go, version of his name. I'll go with George then. So um, yeah, your grandfather grandfather George was a set designer for the Romanian National Opera. Yes, how did that um how did that impact I guess what would eventually be your career in journalism and do you have any memories of kind of spending time with your grandfather grandfather around that time? Yeah, so he I think he retired. I I don't remember him working basically. Ah, so okay. he either retired when I was really small or before I was born. So I don't have any memories of him actually working. Mm. But he had and still has a studio a sort of an artist studio because he is also a painter um, and painting is something that he really basically after he retired he then spent all of his time painting mm. and I have so many memories of spending days on end in his studio painting with him and kind of making little sculptures and just doing all sorts of creative projects he once kind of built me this sort of doll's house out of shoeboxes, you know, things like this. And so he, we had a very, much of the stuff we used to do together was very creative. And my grandfather is somebody who I would come, no matter how bonkers my idea was, he would find a way to make it for me. So 
I remember him once making me this camera out of old tea box with kind of like a fake button made out of foam <laughs> and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So, yeah, super creative. And I think that's where I probably get a lot of my kind of creativity in general. Um, writing, interestingly, he, you know, he's now, nine, if I'm nine, I'm 32, so he's just turned 92 oh. this week, actually. Oh. Um and in the last few years of his life, he's still been painting a lot, but he's also been writing his memoirs. And he's kind of also been sort of experimenting with the writing oh. side of things. Um, so that's kind of been really interesting to see. Um, so, yeah, I think that's there's definitely a strong creative element, sort of family element from him. Also, my father's also an architect as well. So that side of the family is super creative. And then, yeah, in terms of the actual set designs, uh, he did... He was asked by the Opera House to come back after to sort of come out of retirement to do another. He'd done It Was My Fair Lady or Pygmalion, um, a production of My Fair Lady that he did when he was still working. I, I can't remember what, when it was, mm. maybe, I don't know if it was the 70s or the 80s or when it would have been. But uh, the opera put on another performance and they asked him to come back and redo and sort of do the set for them. So I did go and see that production and I sort of saw it with his set design and everything. So that's the only kind of time I've seen it in action. But otherwise I've seen sort of the, oh, he keeps, he's a massive hoarder. So he kept, <laughs> has kept everything. So he still has all of the kind of, um, actual sort of designs and also the sort of mini models of the sets and things like that so um yeah it's always been a very sort of big part it was a big part of his life and it was kind of a big part of our bonding I suppose yeah and is it is there some sort of I guess it's like a strangeness to it that you've watched him and grown up and kind of learned creativity through him and his artwork and now to have it almost come full circle and then him kind of I'm assuming he's coming and looking at you for some advice with the memoir stuff because how phenomenal right you are he's not he's not asking um he's not asking me for any advice but it definitely has come full circle because mm. he's asked me to write the foreword to the memoir ah. so um which will be an interesting challenge because um i speak romanian but i can't write so i'm probably going to have to write I'm, well i'm going to write it in english yeah but yeah that was um it's definitely come full circle and it's um, a huge honor on my part to do that for him and also I think really special to have us kind of tied together mm. like that through storytelling and through this kind of piece of art that's got that's ours together so yeah it's um yeah it's really special oh that's so sweet I love that as you were looking to go to university, did you see yourself moving so far away for uni? Uh, yeah, it was a very conscious choice. Really? Um, yeah, so I um, when I did my undergraduate at Durham, so I grew mm. up in London and I did my undergraduate at Durham and I had applied to London universities and I, I really wanted just to go and experience something really different. And I mean, Durham is pretty much the opposite to London in every possible way. <laughs> so it was quite a conscious choice. Um, I wouldn't say, so whilst I really enjoyed my school years, I really didn't enjoy my university years. Mm. Um, I I then went and, so well, I, I, I first went and worked and then later I went to New York to do a master's degree. So talk about going far away. Um, and I absolutely loved my time doing my master's, but my undergraduate I really struggled with not the actual course itself that was actually um, brilliant because I did an English literature degree which basically meant I spent all of my time reading books mm -hmm. so um, and not really going I mean I was going to lectures there just weren't that many of them to attend mm -hmm. so um, but it was more kind of the shock of moving from home um, 
being around, you know, I've been in quite a sheltered bubble at school, I think, and sort of being around all sorts of different people and just, I just really struggled adjusting to university life. Mm. Um, but I mean, nonetheless, it was a very, it was one of those kind of necessary, but very painful growing experiences. Um, but in terms of actually moving far away, it was something I wanted to do because I, I think I always had in the back of my mind that I would probably spend my life, the majority of my life in London. And so I wanted to experience other things. And I just, I guess also it was that, to be honest, is that probably, you know, you're what, like 18, 17, 18, when you're making the decision to go to university. And if I'm being, if I'm being really honest, it's that, it's that kind of late teenage rebellion of just wanting to move really far away from home that kind of came into it as well. So yeah, university the university is <laughs> what do you think you found most challenging in terms of that transition slash like what did you just not enjoy about I guess the move in general if I'm honest I think it was a people problem mm. um I had a couple of really difficult friendship situations when I was at university and you know obviously when you're a teenager friendships go very up and down but I kind of had expected to have grown out of that by the time I got to university, um, but I didn't. Instead, I found myself in all sorts of really difficult friendship situations. And I think it really comes down to feeling like I never really fitted in. Um, Durham is a funny place because, and I say this as someone who private school, and yet I really struggled at Durham because there were people there from backgrounds that I just couldn't gel with. Um, and I'm really not trying to kind of stereotype, but the majority of those people had gone to kind of public schools and boarding schools and their interests were just really different to mine. And I just struggled to find common ground. Uh, also, Durham's got quite a big sporting element to it, particularly yeah. kind of like rugby and stuff like that. And um, I'm just not, you know, yeah. I'm really not, I'm just not a sporty person. Mm. Um especially not team sports. And so I just really struggled. I just didn't really have that much common ground. And I kind of, I basically became friends with all of the other misfits, mm. which was nice in many ways. But also what I realize now looking back is all that was kind of holding that group together was, or at least holding like my version of that group together was not really being able to fit in anywhere else. And um, I just, yeah, I just, it was a, it was a people issue basically. Mm. And when you're also really far from home that suddenly you know going from where I'd been at school and had really great friends and felt quite comfortable and felt very supported to going somewhere where you don't feel like you you fit in and then um, you're also physically really far from home uh, was just really quite was really really challenging but yeah I think that's what it kind of came down to was just never really finding my place there and it never feeling like home yeah yeah I can understand that I do find that so interesting, though, that you moved away, had this experience that kind of you were like, oh, God, I, I kind of missed home and missed feeling comforts. And then, as you said, you were like, right, I'm going to go to New York for a master's. <laughs> what, um, was, how did that? There was a gap between the two. So Oh, was there? How long was the gap between? Yeah, between... About a year and a half. Okay. So I, I graduated and I moved back to London and I got a job pretty quickly out oh. of university. I was really, really lucky to because um, you know this was I graduated 2009 so it was right smack in the middle of the finance the last oh, financial yeah, crisis course. and I managed to find a job and pretty much straight away so and it started kind of I don't know I came back I, I, I remember I there was quite a long lead time between sort of, it was um it was like a graduate placement uh, okay. thing and it 
I remember getting the confirmation pretty quickly after I graduated, so at the beginning of summer, and it didn't start until September, but I had that summer knowing that I had a job to go to, mm. and I, I kind of, at some point I moved out of home as well, and I just, every, I slotted into work in sort of post-university life really really well and that Uh transition was so much smoother and so much more comfortable than the transition of going from school to university and then it wasn't until so about so I did that job for a year and a half and what I didn't realize at the time this would be a pattern that would continue to follow me throughout my career but uh, the department I was working in was going through a restructuring process and my job was put at risk of redundancy. I actually didn't get made redundant in the end, but it had been put at risk of redundancy. And that experience kind of gave me a kick up the bum to think, is this really what I want to be doing? Uh, Whilst it was a really, it was the perfect job for me at that time. It was not, it was not a job I was going to stay in for the rest of my life. And it was beginning to sort of near its natural conclusion anyway. And then the redundancy, the kind of the, Whenever, whenever a company goes through a restructure, it takes a long time for it to sort of, for the department that's left behind to find its natural rhythm and get back on its feet. And I was at the beginning of my career and I didn't really have the patience to see that through and I realized I didn't want to be doing that kind of job anyway. So I, um, that's when I decided I really, the thing I really want is to be a quote unquote proper journalist. And I wanted to go and do the master's and I specifically wanted to do it abroad because I went straight from school to university, no gap year. I never, I didn't do a, a course at university that had a year abroad. And I really wanted to have some experience of living abroad. So that's kind of why that was a really big deciding factor in why I wanted to go to America. Plus the way journalism is taught in America, it's a much more it's seen as a as a real profession so um yeah so that's kind of why I wanted to go there and just sort of experience something else and try my hand at living living overseas for a bit yeah so I got the timeline wrong in my head so you go you're working at Imperial College that was when post Durham life and then you didn't just go to New York you went to the Ivy League Columbia look at you I was like just Straight away, just go, yep, I'm just going to go to one of the best colleges in the country. What, I guess, the main question I want to ask is how does the opportunity come about in terms of timing? Because you're saying about there's the potential of redundancy. Was it an idea that you had maybe flirted with in the back of your head before or did it somewhat hit you as a surprise and it was just kind of the blessing in terms of timing? And what was your initial experience like as you got to New York and you, yeah, you've managed to find some way of, going to study further away than Durham from home (laughs) Um, so yeah it is quite you know and like now what more than 10 years have passed since I would have started on the process of applying there I know it would have been about 10 years now but I already knew about the course and I'd looked into it I think when I was actually still, I no, I have a really vivid memory now of sitting in the library at Durham and looking at Columbia's journalism program and thinking about it and considering applying I might have even started an application mm. um you know I was I, I was fully aware of the of that 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 course existed and I knew it was a really great course the other big thing that was very appealing to me is it is an Ivy League school so at the back of my mind I was thinking that if this journalism thing doesn't pan out I I at least I have the degree I have is from a really amazing institution mm-hmm. so that was also kind of in my head as well and so yeah I sort of had thought about it and then the 
then, you know, fast forward a year and a half later and the redundancy was happening. And it's quite, it's a really drawn out process and you have so many emotions and there's so many ups and downs. And it really wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a snap decision at all. I thought long and hard about whether I wanted to stay, what I wanted my career to look like. And it was quite a drawn out process. And the actual applicants, you know, to apply, it, there would have been month, there would have been, you know, months long process. Mm-hmm. And so, because I remember the, you know, the application to the university is quite grueling and I had to do all kinds of like essays and things um and this wasn't actually a requirement of Columbia but I also applied to NYU's program as well at the same time but and they wanted this thing called the GRE which is essentially the American version of A-levels um and so I had to do these tests as well and um you know my my weekends for about six months were spent doing this application doing these applications and um, I also applied to to um to university here in London as well okay. so my weekends were spent doing all of this stuff and it was um it's something that actually at that time in my life I often think back to it quite a lot because I was in my early 20s I had a really I had a much fuller social life than I do now <laughs> um my working life even though now I probably have a higher workload mm. back then I had that sort of fear of needing to impress my bosses mm. and I was always you know I was a massive goody two-shoes you mm. know making sure I was on work you know at work on time and kind of appearing to be a really good employee so I, I had work I had work stresses in that in that regard mm. and I kind of think back to when on earth did I find time to do this to do these applications to study for the, these tests mm. and I kind of use that now as motivation or it, it reminds me that I wanted that so badly that I made the time for it and I made that commitment and it did take a long time and it mm. did take a lot of work but it was so so rewarding and I always kind of it was such a good that the experience of actually applying to the program was a lesson that I kind of still draw on today mm. um, but yeah it was quite a long and convoluted process um, and one that you know it, I didn't it definitely was not an overnight decision um, and then you know basically the, the moment I got there I knew it was the right thing it's amazing to kind of get to learn journalism but also to to experience New York like that was I, I think my New York is very different to you know someone who moves out there to go and do a job um, you know someone who's kind of transferred there with work mm. or maybe someone who goes and studies another subject you know my first week our assignments were go deep into Brooklyn and go and cover this mm. um, parade where there was a shooting you know all of these things you know you're kind of you, you see a very different side to New York and it was yeah it was absolutely brilliant it was it's still to this day kind of that that sort of year doing that journalism course is probably the best best year of my life but both terms of kind of professional development but also personal growth as well yeah I was um I was listening to a podcast episode that you were on and it like made my heart warm hearing you talk about New York and that first experience because I'm doing all this research to kind of get to know you a bit better and make this a kind of a more high quality interview and then yeah just hearing your voice it was almost like I could picture your face like just like lighting up as you were talking about it yeah I mean I I I remember I was in the back of a yellow cab with some other people on the journalism school and we were driving around I don't know where we were going but Mm. I was just kind of grinning from ear to ear and I remember kind of 
telling off one of my fellow students because he was complaining about something or another and I was like are you crazy you know this is such a, you know we get to spend a year learning how to be journalists in this crazy city yeah. I, you know and and so yeah it was my only mistake was trying to sort of stay there long like to hold on to that feeling mm. um and I stayed in New York for a couple of years after I did my degree and then and, and actually worked in New York as well yeah. and that was a really really different experience yeah that actually leads me to the next question I wanted to ask because you've spoken about when you were studying one thing that you were researching when you were there was the, uh, the digitalization of media at the time and how fascinating you found that change. Mm. Do you think that helped your transition when, I know it wasn't a media, but as you started to transition into free, in your freelance journey, and do you think that that ends up being kind of the most, the learning that you take that has the most staying power from your work in New York? Um, it definitely was really, really important. So after I graduated, I stayed another year and I was taken on as a fellow in what's known, what's called the Tau Center for Digital Media. Mm -hmm. And it's a place where there's a lot of research that happens into how new media and digital media is changing the face of journalism and, you know, the implication that the rise of technology platforms has on, on journalism, on democracy, on free speech, all of this kind of stuff. And I did quite a lot of work. Um, that year or kind of on this subject, especially in, especially in kind of regards to how tech is changing mm. journalism and sort of the rise of digital media. Um, that was super helpful for a number of reasons. One, it kept me, you know, I, I knew it was super nerdy, basically. And this was sort of also at a point where, you know, it was the height of BuzzFeed mm -hmm. and Vice was kind of also kind of it at its kind of peak and all of these and, you know, it's Gawker and there were all of these digital platform, digital news outlets that were really kind of coming up and really shaking up the industry. Mm -hmm. So it was really good to be right in the middle of that, both kind of actually physically, because really most of this, this most of this change was being driven by New York mm -hmm. and um, to kind of be there in the middle of it and also to actually understand it and to look at it from a kind of critical point of view. Um, in terms of how, how all of this has transitioned into how this is all translated to freelancing, I think it's actually more my general reporting skills that I learned whilst I was on the course. Uh, okay. And we were kind of, because really journalists are sort of a hybrid between a researcher and a detective yeah and it, you know that kind of idea of you know a journalist is a kind of a dog with a bone you know they're trying to figure stuff out and that is the skill that has been most imp that's kind of the most important transferable skill that I have that I brought to freelancing mm. because what that has meant is that every time I suspected something or whatever it might be I use those researching skills interviewing skills kind of digging skills investigative skills i, I apply that to my freelancing mm. so it might be something as simple as oh okay well i want to i don't know automate my invoicing something or something or another or you know automate a part of my freelancing business and i don't know how to do that mm. i will research it until i find the answer or if 
I, for example, you know, want to launch a podcast, which is what I did. And I don't know the first thing about podcasts. Yeah, we did a little little bit of um, audio storytelling on the journalism course, but that was very much the art of telling yeah. a story on audio rather than this is the microphone you need to buy. This is how you kind of actually record the podcast. This is the hosting platform, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just researched, I used those kind of reporting skills just to research all of that stuff. And so, yeah, I think that those two things kind of really, really were very important in kind of what I what I brought over into freelancing. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the actual content as well, digital, having an understanding of how digital media works and also the opportunities and the threats both to journalism and also just kind of online content more broadly, having that foundational knowledge of that is, and it's something that I've always kind of kept up with as well. So I'm not researching it anywhere near the depths that I might have done back then. It's still something that I keep up with. And so I follow the trends and kind of know that, you know, what's kind of what's going you know what's rising what's you know where where are the things coming down the road where are the threats where are the opportunities that kind of thing yeah it's um we had a similar i guess podcast experience because i didn't know how to do anything and i mean absolutely anything didn't know mics didn't know hosting platforms I had even, I guess, a little less. I didn't know how to interview anyone. I didn't know how long it was going to be. And I think, I mean, the podcast you and Tiffany have built is, it's one of maybe two or three podcasts I listen to every week when it's out. And you guys clearly have that rapport, which is just super special. I think it makes it even better. Yeah, I guess it's that skill set that you've built in terms of you've looked for answers. And that's been something that you've had to learn to do from studying journalism all the way through till now. And I guess it's just being extremely resourceful, right, with kind of the information that's already out there. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that all of this information exists in one form or another. Mm. And there is really, it's kind of, um, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because we live in a time where there is so much information out there and so much good information and so much free information, but it can be really hard to discern it. And so I guess that's where the journalism side of things comes into it because one of the things you're taught is kind of how to identify credible sources and that sort of thing. So I do, I suppose, apply some of that to the information hunting that I'm doing when I'm applying it to my own business and my own freelancing but it's still very much something that you know I was this is a skill that is teachable or this is a skill that's even even to a large extent you can figure out yourself but it's I guess it starts with a with the belief that the information out there exists Mm -hmm. whether it's whether it's free or whether you need to pay for it because there's also so much good quality and quite cheap information as well and um so yeah kind of starting with that belief that the answer is out there and then just the determination to find it i think that's sort of that's really what it comes down to yeah yeah i completely agree it's um i've learned everything from like youtube and blogs ended up being the way i taught myself everything yeah, YouTube is, uh, I've, uh, you know, 90% of my freelancing is, is, is backed by YouTube um, <laughs> and videos that I've watched. From, and, and really it rain, like kind of runs the whole gamut from this is how you set up a Trello board to here are some things that you should, this you know, here are some ways for you to manage your finances when you're a freelancer mm. through to here's the best microphone to buy for your podcast. You know, it's pretty much all come from YouTube. Yeah. How did you find the transition back from New York to London that time, the first time? 
the first time was really hard and painful because I didn't want to leave New York. Mm. So I'd been there for two years and pretty much had to leave because I was on a student visa and it got to the end of that. Um, And so I found that quite painful to come back. So I felt like I wasn't ready. And I, but I, I mean, I ended up getting a great job at The Guardian mm-hmm. and I was really, I was very happy kind of in my social life and in my professional life. But I just, there was that kind of feeling of, I wish I, I'd left New York, not on my terms. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of still at the back of my mind. Um, I felt like my story there wasn't finished and that I wasn't quite ready yet to, I think, I think I've always, I think I always knew that, you know, as I said earlier, that London was, was where my future was going to be, but I wasn't just quite, I wasn't quite ready for it at that point. Mm. Um, So yeah, that transition I think was a a bit tricky. Yeah. And then once again, the restructure thing comes along, right? With the, with the stuff at the Guardian and then you're given, no, someone puts you forward, right? Someone says. Yeah, yeah, there was no, there was no, I mean, there were probably restructurings. I mean, the Guardian yeah. is, was always kind of going through rounds of redundancy. So it's probably something was going on at some yeah. point. But um, I, the, the, the Guardian was opening its Guardian US uh-huh. arm and, or was, you know, been going for probably about a year or so and an opportunity came up in the New York office, Mm. which I applied for. I was sort of encouraged to apply for, and then I applied for, and I got. So I moved back to New York, this time with The Guardian, and was going out there to work. Um, I've got a really left-field question, and I'm sorry it's come at such a weird time. This is going to be somewhat like me saying to Robert De Niro that once I performed in a school play, but... For me, anyway, I've always found writing in terms of being able to write the best stuff that I've wrote for blog stuff on mine or anybody else's is that it usually comes from a really impassioned place in terms of it can be a darker place or it can be like a sad place. But if I'm able to tap into the most extreme version of what that is, it ends up leading to writing that I'm most proud of. What do you, what space do you find, I guess, emotionally or physically or mentally, do you find yourself the that you produce the best work? That's a really hard question because I never yeah. feel like my work is, I'm never happy with the result, usually. Oh. But I think it's a, it's when the story is something that it kind of comes from deep within me and it's a, it's a fundamental need to tell that story. Mm. Um, and that is something that I, this was kind of this sort of vocabulary of thinking of it as a sort of a story that needs to be told was something that I did learn from a professor while I was at Columbia. Mm. Um, his name is Michael Shapiro. Um, he actually writes a really brilliant newsletter called Writerland. Mm. And he's been writing for a lot longer than I have and has been teaching, you know, he's taught thousands of students. And he has this theory that, especially when it comes to kind of big stories or those stories that writers become really obsessed with or really fascinated by, that actually it's being it's being driven by a very personal need mm-hmm. to either tell the story or engage with it and kind of go along the journey with it because I don't write in this I don't really write in the first person apart from I suppose in my newsletter because mm-hmm. that's kind of about freelancing but in terms of any features that I write for magazines or newspapers or whatever it's always someone else's story and it's an interview and it's a feature or a profile on someone else. But there's obviously, you know, I think this is true for all writers. There's something that's compelling you or drawing you to that story. It might be that character is really fascinating and you want to understand why things have panned out for them in a certain way or, you know, it, 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 
it might be a whole range of reasons but there's something that's really compelling you and really drawing you to that story and it might have nothing it might on the surface have nothing to do with you it might be that you don't even know what that reason is that you're compelled until you're sort of three quarters of the way into the journey of writing the story um but i think that to me is kind of where the most powerful storytelling happens and produces probably the you know the quote-unquote best output yeah because i um that's amazing by the way really interesting because i read a piece that you did my name i'm blanking on the dj's name but it was the scottish dj you wrote about he had had some master yes yeah 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 and it was about some of the, um, I don't know how to word this properly and I don't want to get it wrong. So he basically had some issues in terms of his interactions with female workers or just people that he came, women he came across in kind of his work. And you did such a fantastic job. But I think it's, I don't know if it's because you maybe, this is an assumption and I, it's more so to just confirm or, or not. But I don't know if it's because you knew the severity of the topic and how, that conversation has really matured in the past few years, but you handled it so well in terms of, I guess, his fallout from it and his kind of recovery in terms of knowing what he did was wrong. And yeah, I just found it amazing. And it, I just want, that's where the kind of, where do you come from in terms of space when you're writing? Thank you. Um, yeah, that was a really hard story to kind of execute, both in mm. terms of um, actually the writing of it, but also, you know, handling the interview. So yeah, so Jack Masters, a um, Scottish DJ who's, you know, he's he's a very famous DJ. And, you know, most people who are fans of electronic music will know him, most likely. Um, and he was accused of um, sexually harassing some women at a festival. And he has apologised for that and has um, said that he did it. He was really, really intoxicated at the time. So what was really interesting and quite it's quite hard for him and something that we talked a lot about in our interview was that he still doesn't remember. He only, he has fragments of memories of that night. So he doesn't fully remember what happened, but he accepts that it did. And he talks and he talks about it as though it is fact. Mm. And what was um, the most important part of that kind of whole process was actually the interview. Mm. So, you know, when you read something, especially maybe, you know, this profile, for example, you focus on, it's very easy and very natural for the readers to kind of, they focus on the writing of the profile, but all of the heavy lifting has come in the interview. So we spent a good hour plus together and I asked him loads of questions and kind of just let him say his story and then kept asking more questions and sort of went down all sorts of avenues because I went into that because the the tension in that story and what I was trying to understand from him is how do you move past something Mm -hmm. as big as this in your career at the same time taking full responsibility for it and being remorseful because we're kind of at this phase in the post me too world where we don't really know what to do with people who have committed sexual harassment or sexual assault admitted to it and and, there's the question mark of and then what because in jack master's case he actually offered to the victims to go and turn him and and he, he wanted yeah. to go to the police basically, and they said they didn't want to press charges, and that was their decision. So in a situation, and you know, this is, I think this kind of probably is quite common for a lot of the cases that have come out of me too. That there might not be any actual 
legal ramifications mm. so what happens to your career what happens to your your life um and so really it was just about asking really really difficult questions that um you know i found that i found the interview really it was very very emotionally draining mm. um to be perfectly honest because you have to you your question comes into your mind that you think oh god i can't ask this and you have to ask it that's your kind of job as the journalist um and every time you I know mean, my best advice for anyone who is is that anytime you have a question that you think you shouldn't ask ask it because that's 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 your instinct telling you something and so yeah that was um that was really yeah it was a very it was it was tough and um something that i was just very conscious of because you know to put it really bluntly this is not I didn't want that interview to read as, you know, oh, Jack Master now just has, he wants to start touring again or, or whatever. And this is just kind of piece of, this is a PR stunt basically. Mm. So I've, I felt the kind of duty to press him as hard as I could. And also I think the other thing that's really important about that story is that the victims also were, because ultimately it comes down to the victims, the victims set the tone for what should happen. Mm. And they were supportive of Jack Master giving that interview and moving forward with his career, which I think really, to be honest, kind of is the most important takeaway from that whole piece yeah. because that means that he has done the work to make amends with them because if they're comfortable with him doing something like this, it means that he has done the work. Yeah, I um, I wish you had been there in my life last year when I was worrying about tough questions, it's been the one thing I've really had to learn this season in particular, being able to ask, because I'm quite naturally quite private. And obviously I'm asking a lot of very sensitive topics and I've never expected the podcast to go in so many different directions of things that, yeah, just flat out just didn't ever expect to ever talk about because you, you know, you have your own life experience and, and it's, yeah, I think I'm trying to get more comfortable with the idea of, yeah, maybe I, I, it's my own insecurity of being somewhat guarded and that that person's here to want to represent their life the right way. And that question, if it has value in terms of the answer, be comfortable asking it and understand that the uncomfortable is okay. But that's me, not the other person. <laughs> so well, I, I always do think about kind of what draws us to the things that we do. Mm. Um, because, you know, it's only really been in the last year or so that I've been on the receiving end of being interviewed. Yeah. And I definitely did not start out on this career to be on this side of the <laughs> question table. Um, it's not something that I, you know, I don't love having to, you know, I'm, I'm a private person as well. So mm. it's something that's been a learning curve for me. But again, um, gosh, this really feels like such an advert for going to journalism school. But mm. something that I was taught in my journalism training was um, we were, you know, very early on in our program, we were paired up with each other, us, us students, mm. and we were, we interviewed one another and then wrote profiles about each other. Mm. And the point of it was to teach us what it is like to be interviewed by a journalist. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's mm. really, it's quite difficult to see, to A, to kind of answer questions about your personal life, um, and then B, to have it written up by someone else and for yeah. you to kind of lose that control of the narrative but it's a really really great exercise because it then makes you a lot more empathetic about how you handle someone else's story um and i think that's the other really important thing is that you just have to remember there is a responsibility in that and um you know i mean in terms of something like podcasts the really the beauty of them is that it's still me speaking so obviously you're directing the interview 
but it's still me and my voice and it's still me that's speaking. The problem with when it comes to writing is that I then take all of that and I shape the narrative and I decide what to include and what not to include. I mean, I suppose you can kind of do that with the editing, but generally people do still have the control and the ability to say what they want to say and not say what they don't want to say. Yeah, so interesting, but I actually, I've been interviewed on two podcasts in the last couple of weeks and I feel 100% the exact same. I feel so much more uncomfortable. It has made me a lot more empathetic in terms of this process now. I naturally went into it from a kind of empathetic place, but it has heightened that sense. And yeah, someone said it to me, they were like, how do you feel about being on the other side of the mic? And I was like, I'm absolutely terrified, like terrified. I've got no idea what you're going to ask. I come about this process quite nerdy. So you've seen with the questions in terms of how nerdy that process is. So yeah, I think, yeah, to sacrifice that control, it does really have a, it's so strange. I, yeah, I don't know if I'll ever get comfortable with it, but you soon find out. <laughs> As you enter 2019 and we're getting to you transitioning into the freelancer kind of world, you wrote an open letter, which I did read. Um, I found it on the internet. It was for fair play, fair pay for freelancers. What led to that campaign beginning? And what truly compelled you to begin that movement and be the person that's, I guess, like the spearhead of it all in some way? Um, so, so the Fair Pay for Freelancers campaign, it is a campaign that calls specifically on the media mm -hmm. to pay its freelance journalists fairer, better and faster. And the pay issue, um, sort of no payment, late payment, slow payment, this issue affects all freelancers. Mm -hmm. But there are industry-specific problems. And for journalists, the problem is this concept called payment on publication, which basically means that your invoice won't get processed until the piece has actually been published. And this is something that I... Um, so I experienced all sorts of payment problems very early on into my freelancing, almost pretty much immediately. Um, and it's an issue that still continues. In fact, it's something that I'm ha I have going on right now. Mm. I wrote a feature for a magazine and um, it got commissioned the beginning of the year. It was supposed to go in one issue. It got bumped to go into another issue for kind of and, and these these are things that happen all the time it's a very normal process you know the magazine and news industry are very reactive mm. and so things get moved around all the time and that's that's fine except the problem is that i was in my kind of cash flow system i'd done my piece i'd filed my invoice i'd been told it was going to go in issue one mm -hmm. expecting the payment to come 30 days after it gets bumped to issue two and, you know, I'm still waiting for the payment basically. Okay. So it's issue, it's problems like that, um, that face journalists in particular. And so I was already, already aware of it. Um, and, you know, talked a lot, talked extensively about this, this problem to other fellow freelancers and fellow freelance journalists. And then what happened is at the beginning of last year, 2019, a, website called the pool announced that it was shutting down and um, ceasing operation and it was a website that was it focused on sort of women's lifestyle and politics and it was a very kind of female focused website and really heavily reliant on freelancers and the problem is is that when it went out of business it left 
lots of freelancers with unpaid invoices and for some that were you know pushing the sort of 10k mm. you know, thousands of pounds worth of unpaid invoices i wasn't personally affected by this i've never, I've never written for the pool and i myself i wasn't owed any money by them but that had come hot on the heels of what well, a you know when I got made redundant, it was because the um, the website that I worked for got shut down. Mm. It was a part of Vice Media. So it's not like the whole thing went out of business, but the website I worked for got shut down. A couple of other websites also either um, got shut down or made a whole raft of redundancies. So what happened with the pool had come kind of hot on the heels of all of these other situations. But what that situation made me realize is when invoices go unpaid on the part of freelancers they are acting as de facto creditors to these large organizations and if the worst case happens where they go bankrupt they are left out of pocket Mm. and this worst case scenario does happen that you know that has happened in the past and will probably continue to happen and um so that was the impetus for sort of starting the campaign um and Um, publishing that open letter because what I find most frustrating about freelancing is that in so many ways it is the completely the right thing for me in terms of lifestyle way I work type of projects I get to do the variety it offers me the ability to kind of try out new things and develop skills and do everything kind of on my own time scale and all of that stuff but the mechanics of how it works, the mechanics of getting paid, having to ask for having to ask for money that I am owed for projects and work that I've long completed, and then have to kind of soft, you know, be really sort of manage the emotional expectations of the client and all of this stuff it is absolutely exhausting, and it hampers my ability to do my job. And then when you think about journalists in particular, assuming that the journalist is kind of in the game for the right journalistic reasons, which is to to provide members of the public with important pieces of information mm. that they can use to inform their decision making, be it about kind of a democratic issue or whatever it might be. You know, journalists do get a lot of stick, but they are really, really the media is a really, really important part of our society. And there are so many journalists are freelance. Adding all of these headaches about payment just makes them makes it really hard for them to do their job. And so all of these things was kind of what spurred me to launch the campaign and, and try, at least in my part, to do something about this issue, draw attention to it, put a bit of pressure where it, you know, where it might make a difference. Yeah. Um I mean, there's so many different directions in my head I'd I'd love to go in. The first one I'll do, which is really silly, I've just pictured when you're talking about trying to get money for invoices, just like the crowbar to the knees, like (laughs) the shark lines, Anna Cordray, (laughs) crowbar, Rado. Um, But in all seriousness, because there were serious things that were also going through my mind, do you think that because of the news cycle works so quickly now, and the demand for updates and news is so quick. Do you think that's having an impact on, in terms of, like you said, you wrote a piece that comes out, it should be coming out in the first issue of a year, but because news is so, there's so much access to news, does that process ever put a freelancer at the point where you may write something, write something you're really proud of, and then they just go, well, no, 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 that's just like, like old news now. And then you've got to be concerned, not only to get paid on publication in terms of, that was something that really stuck out to me when you spoke about it. But also the idea that 
they just may not want to write about like have an article on that or is there is there practice where that doesn't happen um i think that's always been a bit of a concern mm-hmm. where you know you might write a feature particularly if it's not very newsy and then a major news event comes and fills the paper and your piece gets bumped that's happened to me in the past and so i think that that's sort of always been a concern mm. i think the key is really that if something gets it's it's called getting it's called the piece is no it's known as the piece getting spiked okay. when it um basically kind of gets bumped out of the issue um, um or killed and normally most magazines and newspapers have what's known as a kill fee so if your piece does end up kind of not making it Mm. for those reasons you may get a percentage or if not the full amount of the fee Mm. so i think because that's always been an issue and how kind of news has worked that those mechanisms have sort of been already catered for i guess or sort of there are kind of um ways in which to sort of deal with that issue Mm. um in terms of kind of whether or not the intensity of how much news we want will affect journalists i mean most journalists who write more newsy stuff and the faster turnaround things, they tend to do that on a day rate okay. um, or they or um, they might be part of a news shift. So they may actually go into the organization's office and cover and do basically do a sort of full day's work for a day rate, mm-hmm. um, in which case. Yeah. what happens to the news stories doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. it's something that i think journalists need to be really mindful of and they need to be thinking about kind of protecting themselves basically that's what a lot of freelancing is about whether you're a journalist or whether you're a graphic designer or any other kind of freelancer um you kind of always need to be thinking about protecting yourself because there's there's that saying about you know never be, never be loyal to a company because it won't be loyal to you that and you know in terms of mm. a staff member but that's even even truer for freelancers that you've always got to be taking care of yourself and i i try to not be negative but sort of do assume that companies will do the worst possible thing and yeah. that, um, you know don't don't kind of think oh no that won't happen to me or you know they treat me they always they treat me well and we're a family or this i just i always assume that that the companies are going to do something bad to me yeah, they don't get paid in brownie points, unfortunately. So yeah, um, let's take some. Let's take this in a very positive light. So you founded the Professional Freelancer, which is a community that's helped thousands of freelancers, I guess, provide themselves with tools and information that they need to kind of help themselves. What would you say it looks to achieve as a community? But also, how have you found that it's been effective as it's grown? Um, yeah, so the professional freelancer started as a newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I went freelance, I started writing a newsletter, and it took a while for me to find my feet with it, but eventually it became the professional freelancer, which um, the aim of it is to help other freelance journalists, but also writers, bloggers, content creators make a sustainable self employed living. And my whole ethos with it was to chart my journey as a freelancer and share any lessons about the ups, the downs, everything, share it all. And in the hopes that it would help other people also make it work as a freelancer. And then that kind of evolved into a whole community. And so now I also, well, last year I put on, I was putting on events pretty much every month for um mainly for freelance journalists um but also kind of freelancers more generally as well 
and they were very very practically focused so my whole idea with them was that everyone who comes to one of my events should leave with either a tool a piece of information contact something that will improve their working life their freelance life immediately or sort of that week or kind of something they can action straight away that will improve their life be that um be that it will help them make more money um it will introduce them to a new client it will teach them uh, something new a skill or something um and then also i've i've kind of done um a uh, quite a bit of sort of social media activity as well so um, mainly on my instagram sort of aren't doing q a's for freelancers sharing guides about various freelancing tips and all of that kind of thing and basically the whole point of it was you know i very much found that there wasn't really anywhere for me to turn to for help as i was freelancing so there's a lot there are, there's a lot of information about how to go freelance and the things you need to do in preparation to freelance but there wasn't a whole lot out there about what happens once you're actually freelance mm. um both in terms of actual practical information and also in terms of community support and having a place to talk to other people um and so everything i kind of do with a professional freelancer is all in service of that um i really don't believe that freelancing is some kind of silver bullet for people who are unhappy in their work and i really don't think that freelancing is for everyone but for those who do choose to do it i just want to help give them as much support and access to the tools and and, and things that they could possibly need to have the best possible go at it and that they shouldn't be hampered by things like not knowing i don't know how to write an invoice mm. or not knowing how to go about developing a second set like a multiple revenue stream or you know something like that um kind of goes back to this thing of i've learned so much from doing all of this research that it's sort of my attempt to try and share that with other people as well yeah it's super sweet because when i first heard it the thing that came to my mind was as a freelancer, you're you're in somewhat of an open market, right? You're competing. And for you to turn what could be an extremely competitive field in terms of the freelance field and to add a collaborative element to it, first of all, that just resonates with me on a very deep personal level in terms of I've been trying to seek that in life in general, that I'm not a very masculine. Well, I am somewhat masculine, but I have a far more feminine like I try to see the best in people and I try not to compete with people on a very daily basis. So for you to create that is like super special. And I just thought, have you found anything in terms of resistance, in terms of it, it somewhat easily becoming a competitive field? Or have you found it, people found it as like a breath of fresh air or almost to stop themselves from drowning. It's like that bit of air they need to feel like, oh God, thank God it's not so much like I'm on my own. Yeah, I mean, I think that to start with, I think increasingly because a lot of people come to freelancing as a result of redundancy or sort of feeling like they've been in some way pushed or forced into it, mm. that that actually has created more camaraderie and more mm. sort of community mm. because basically we feel like we've been screwed over by companies or, you know, we're angry that we've lost our jobs and we sort of take solace in the fact that we're all in this together. So I think that, I think that plays into a little bit. Um, but I just, I really don't think that, um, I, I truly believe that there is space at the top for everyone mm. and that everyone, that there is enough money, there's enough resources to go around and that 
I don't look at other freelancers as my competitors. I look at them as my colleagues um, almost. And that I really believe that if freelancers work together, it improves the industry for everyone. Mm. Um, And, you know, I've I've had this kind of before sort of people say like, you know, wouldn't you be worried that someone, if you shared ideas, that someone would sort of, I don't know, steal your secret sauce or (laughs) or whatever it might be. Um, And, you know, it's just, I'm not Coca-Cola making making soft drinks where there is an actual sort of formula or whatever this is just i'm just teaching people i'm teaching people the mechanics of running a business and Mm -hmm. i don't think that that needs to be a major secret i think the elements that make me me and my ability to generate ideas i can teach people how i come up with ideas but they're still never going to have the same ideas that i have they will just generate their own ideas and i think that's that's a very that's great you know Mm. that that ultimately the sort of the more high quality content there is out there the better the more people who are able to learn things so that they can go and pursue the careers that they want the happier the world will be and the people who actively engage in the community be that sort of either on my instagram page or that there are there's a kind of a um an option to pay to receive additional newsletters and there's a lot of kind of like community focused stuff there or people who come to the events and stuff like that the support amongst the community everyone helps each other everyone's very kind to each other and it's just it's a really it's a really wonderful place to be a part of so um yeah i just i just don't think that i'm not i don't really have this kind of concern that i'm doing myself any disservice by being open in this way and kind of encouraging this collaboration because all i've seen from this journey so far is our positive things so Mm. yeah the two the two resounding points that come up from what you're saying is firstly yeah no one no one else can be anna cordrado if you know, if someone took a special source, it's like you're betting on yourself every day as a freelancer to be like, no, 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 I'm, I know that I can come up with the next thing or the next project. So there's that confidence there, which I think maybe, maybe that's why people can get competitive because maybe they don't believe that they could do the great, they could be great again and again and again. And the second thing is, I've always found this like, let's say, you know, me and you, we have our podcasts and let's just say, you go to Spotify, for example, just to pick a random streaming platform and you go, I've got this amazing deal. This is what happens. If we have that collaborative kind of relationship, I know what you're getting and you're pushing the ceiling of what we can achieve in that field. So you may help a journalist, a freelance journalist, go to some, you know, go to a really respected platform and get a certain contract that no one's ever got. That then becomes like the new ceiling. And they've actually pushed the profession forward. So, yeah, I just, it was the one thing, it was one of many things that I just really loved what you were doing in terms of you're pushing boundaries and you're pushing, yeah, just the ceiling for people to what they can achieve in that profession. Yeah, I mean, that's ultimately, I'm really glad to see you kind of see it like that because that's that's a really big aim of mine that I think whatever you do in your industry if it helps everyone else that's such a that's such important and powerful thing mm-hmm. and um i i just really believe in the kind of idea of rising tides lift all boats yeah. and that 
help you it's never going to turn out badly if you help your fellow colleague or your fellow human or whatever it might be but if there was just a bit more kind of kindness and compassion and collaboration between people um the world the work world the world writ large would be a happier better place i completely agree do you ever um do you ever receive any positive feedback or compliments that they can almost feel a little bit emotionally not overwhelming i guess but have you ever received a piece of feedback from someone that's used your new let- newsletters that you're like, oh my God, I don't quite, it doesn't feel like almost real that they're saying this? Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, anytime anyone gets in touch with me to say that, um, I think that, I think the times that I, so I, I often get people saying something along the lines of, I took your advice and I negotiated a better rate mm. um, or something kind of financial. And I love those so much because that makes such a really tangible difference to someone's life. But the newsletter, the responses that I get that really kind of get me are the ones that people just say, oh, you know, I I look forward, I'm I'm waiting to receive your email and I read it every Friday and, uh, you know, it's inspiring or, you know, whatever the feedback might be, it's the people who are kind of along, coming along the journey with me and Mm. who are there and, um, and who have allowed me into their inbox and not only allowed me into their inbox, kind of welcomed me. Um, and, and that I find quite, um, yeah, I guess overwhelming, I think. Yeah. Um, and um, very, very, it, that, that, it's that, those moments is what keeps me going. And yeah. it's the thing that I get the most satisfaction and most reward from other people kind of who are sort of coming along this journey with me. Yeah, I completely understand. And it actually leads me to a question because I can't wait for when your podcasts come out. <laughs> and I wanted to, I guess, ask what was the initial, what was the initial desire to set up a podcast and your relationship with Tiffany? Where did that all begin? Uh, so Tiffany, Tiffany Philippou yep. is my podcast co-host, but she has been my friend. We've known each other since we were pro- technically 11. We were oh. at school together. We became much closer when we were in sixth form and then bizarrely really close after university. Mm. Um, so we've been friends for a really, really long time. And this idea of working together has been something we've actually been speaking about pretty much since we were in our first jobs after university. Mm. Um and it's taken many different forms, what our sort of proposed business would be. <laughs> um, but no, the podcast came about because, so Tiffany and I both went freelance pretty much at the same time. Um, we both lost our jobs within about a month of each other. And um, I and we both decided to go freelance. And as we were both sort of learning and going along our journeys we would leave each other voice notes on our phones because we love sending voice notes via (laughs) whatsapp um and at some point i made this and and our our messages were quite sort of they'd be about our own personal experiences but also be drawing on kind of oh i wonder how this you know plays out on a larger scale i wonder if this affects other people and you know all of these sort of quite i don't know philosophical ramblings basically between the two of us and i made this comment to her that I thought, as kind of big-headed as as this is going to sound, but I made this comment to her where I said, I bet you other people would want to hear what we have to say about this because I've not heard anyone else talking about the things we're talking about. Um, And from there, the podcast was born, basically, (laughs) and we we decided to kind of 
take our I, and I know it's so cliche and so kind of millennial to mm. say oh yes well you know we were VMing each other and then we wanted to make it into a podcast but honestly that is the that is the origin story of the <laughs> podcast I love that so much because uh, <laughs> that was exactly what I said when I was coming out with Guards of Eden I was like oh it is the most 2019 thing of all time but I'm coming out of a podcast but I do I truly love it so to give you the backstory of how I found you, I heard you on the Creative Rebels podcast and then noticed that you had your own and immediately just loved what you guys were talking about. And yeah, as I've said, it's, you know, the rapport that you guys have is so, is like a big part of it. But also this, this you're covering, as you said, these topics that you can't really find anywhere else. And it's the, it's not so niche that it's free, that because you both freelance, you don't talk about things that strictly apply to freelancers like you guys were talking about one that i found really funny was office politics yeah but like that's something that everyone goes through and it's not just a freelancer thing but you guys are drawing on experience in the employment kind of field and making it interesting topics but how important has you and tiffany's relationship been just in your life personally uh oh hugely hugely Mm -hmm. So I, I'm an only child, so I don't know what it's like to have a sister, but I would say it's, in fact, it's not even, this is going to sound so cheesy. I, love it. I think Tiffany's my soulmate. Oh, <laughs> um, I love I really that do. so much. Because there is kind of a, there's like a, a leveled, it's, it's more than a friendship. Mm. And I, 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 I feel that it's, it's why kind of the podcast works because, mm. you know, we, I've been asked before, we've both been asked if, you know, is it really hard to, to do, especially because we are with the podcast, you know, we are, um, we have taken sponsorship. So there is a business element to the podcast. Mm. Um, you know, is it hard to go into business with a friend? And I, I found the fact that we have this friendship and this very special friendship to be really important to how we then carry out our mm. business because there's such a there's a respect there's a kind of equality to us there's you know there's nothing we can't say to each other mm. um so i think that's been really really important both sort of behind the scenes and kind of building the podcast and the business and then in terms of on mic it you know our whole thing is we want to be talking about work the idea of kind of it's two friends hashing out and trying to pass all of the weird and kind of emotional sides of work and um that's that's really is what we're aiming to do and i think the fact that we are actually friends you know that if there is a secret source of the podcast that's what it is yeah yeah i can really tell that i just like you know i've followed you guys on instagram for a while and just like you guys talking about your like podcast meetings and i do put that in quotations because it's like (laughs) it can be like you guys watching friends or you were on her story yesterday about kind of just like feet on the sofa like yeah this is my thinking chair i just loved it but um has there been a topic that has resonated with you more so than the others i think when we've talked about success and ambition those are the things that i find i keep kind of naturally i keep coming back to i think quite deeply about Mm. because um, and you've kind of touched on this you know the the podcast is very much not we never set out with the podcast to make it for freelancers Mm. um freelancing is the way we've come to appreciate the role that work plays in our lives and Mm. it has changed our own relationships with work 
and has given us a different lens to view work through. But our, our interest is in work in all of its forms. And no matter what kind of, no matter your employment status or how you work or where you work or anything like that, um, this is kind of a podcast basically for anyone who has a job and is interested in their career. Yeah. Um, but things like success and ambition, because they looked so different for me when I worked in a staff job and now mm. and I think one of the things that I'm personally interested in and kind of going back to what we were talking about in terms of sort of what draws you to a story or what draws you to an idea what I'm really interested in is if I would have known that I could write my own definition of success would I have been happier in a staff job or in-house and now that I've sort of changed my ideas about what work should look like and what success means and my relationship to my own ambition and all of these things if I would have learned all of that beforehand, um, maybe I would have been, not that I didn't enjoy my staff jobs, I really did, but my relationship to my work looked really, really different. Yeah. And the role that I saw it playing in my life looked really, really different. And maybe things would have been different had I come to these conclusions sooner. So I think part of the thing with the podcast, part of our mission is to help anyone who, because as I said, I don't think freelancing is for everyone and not everyone wants to go freelance. And I don't think it should be the case that you have to quit your job to suddenly start loving your job. Yeah. So if there's ways we can encourage people to shift their mindsets in their current situation, rather than having to have something dramatic happen, happen to their careers that to us feels like success with the podcast yeah oh i love it so much um the penultimate question before we get to the final four i try and do this but be as open and as honest as you wish to be what would you say that your future kind of goals and hopes are both professionally and maybe personally i don't know how intertwined they are but i always believe in this idea that there's some power to verbalizing what your goals and hopes are and I kind of was curious to what yours are because your journey is so, it's so winding and it's gone in so many different directions that, yeah, it's just something that's very curious of me. I think the best way to answer that is I have my sort of very top line goal is, mm. and this, this sounds very woo-woo and very lofty, but it is to live life on my own terms. And that applies to all aspects of my life. And so thinking about it in terms of work, that means being able to do work that I find fulfilling, work that I enjoy the process of doing it. Success to me is measured by whether or not I feel like I'm being fulfilled by actually doing the task rather than trying to reach mm -hmm. a never-ending list of goals. It means living life on my own terms also means being able to fit my work around my life and my life around my work uh, in a very kind of fluid way mm. and it to not be a problem. Things as, as simple as, you know, I have a dog and she is nearly 12 and she's arthritic and she's in and out of the vet and there's always something wrong with her. Um, and, you know, I don't want to have to ask permission to go and take my dog to the vet. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to have to tell anyone that I'm taking my dog to the vet. Exactly. I just want to be able to just go and do that and it not have to be this other kind of sort of concern that I have, this sort of mental concern that I have. Same with if hair bleached in the middle of the day, that's what I want to do. Um, and, you know, I try not to work on weekends, but sometimes I do and I don't want to have to, I don't want to feel guilty about it, like all of these things. And, and then also kind of in, I guess, sort of my life outside of work is just kind of being able to move at my own pace and not feeling like I'm being rushed and not feeling like I'm obliged to kind of hang, go and do all of these, have all of these social commitments that are just 
obligations rather than sort of active decisions Mm -hmm. um and just kind of being really mindful about how I spend my time how I spend my energy not feeling guilty about things like so today is a really good example I'm obviously speaking on this podcast right now and this morning I was at a meeting I'm a really introverted person and Mm -hmm. so um talking is actually I just I find it really tiring and really draining. I 100%. love it. Um, you know, I host my own events and I host my own podcast, but these things are really draining. And when I first started freelancing, I would do these things and then think I would be able to work, the, you know, around these things or work, you know, do kind of an hour's work after after recording a podcast or going to an event. I've now got to a point where I'm I know myself and I know that my energy levels don't allow that. Mm. And so probably for you know after we finish recording this, this that probably will be the end of my working day. Yeah. And this idea of living life on my own terms means that I'm I will consciously not let myself get, feel guilty for that. Um, and just kind of work in tune with what's right for me, my energy levels, all of these things. So like I said, super woo-woo and very (laughs) kind of lofty. But that to me, that's kind of, those are my sort of goals and that's kind of how I sort of think about things. Um, Rather than in terms of kind of, right, I must have, tick off all of these milestones or hit X by by this age or Mm. make X amount of money and all of those things. So um, I think it's important to kind of, I don't want to make it sound like I have absolutely no financial goals or kind of no kind of like milestone goals goals because of course I do but they're more like steps in service to this much more lofty (laughs) feeling and my goals are more around my feelings Mm. um and it being you know living my life in a sustainable way and those kinds of things yeah I mean, the introvert stuff you're talking about is like 100% down my alley. Um, I recorded one of these yesterday and I knew I was like, I could take a half day to record this if I wanted to. But I was like, no, I'm good. I'm going to just take the whole day and (laughs) start the day slowly because it's the same. I think people don't understand that, though, when it comes to podcasters. They I don't know if they just assume that you're extremely comfortable talking a lot. And it's definitely in my case, it's 100% not the case. Like it's. I enjoy it. I enjoy this process. But yeah, I can find it really, I can find myself somewhat emotionally fatigued if I do it too frequently. Or as you said, like the external stuff outside of it ends up becoming more so overwhelming in that sense. But yeah, you, you've sung a lot of what I'm thinking in my head when you said all of that. Um, right. This is the shameless plug before the final four. Anna, how can people find you, whether it's social media please plug the newsletter is this working everything that you've got going on so they can find you um so i am at anna cod on twitter and instagram Mm -hmm. and from there you can probably find links for everything else but um the podcast is called is this working Mm -hmm. and it is on all podcast platforms so if you just search is this working on spotify apple podcast anywhere you'll find it um and then my newsletter is called the professional freelancer and you can find it at the professional freelancer.substack.com but um if you just go on my twitter and my instagram the links everything is all is all there so yeah perfect and for those of you who are listening it's also in the show notes so have a little wander into the show notes okay anna the final four. So these are questions I ask everyone. They are slightly deeper slash philosophical slash engaging in that way. But yeah, first one. 
What's one thing in your life that you're proud of overall? It would have to be my ability to just keep pushing forward. And I've had setbacks, I've had career pivots, I've had life pivots, but I've somehow found a way to just push through them and just keep pushing forward even even though in those moments I've really really felt like not mm. um but yeah I think I think if I'm kind of being really real that would probably be it rather than there be rather than say for example kind of a actual kind of physical milestone or anything like that um I think it's just that ability just to keep going awesome what's one personal struggle that you have that many people may not know about um maybe they do know but um I guess it because <laughs> I have said it before but I think the introverted mm. thing um because it actually is taken me also a really long time to appreciate how it has affected my work and my personal life and all of these things um because like I said I can find it really draining doing sort of external facing activities yeah. and it's really taken kind of going freelance and, and realizing that I, how much I need to recharge my batteries. Um, but it's just something that I'm quite kind of mindful of mm. all of the time. Um, and it's something that, you know, if I'm scheduling my day, I'm now, I think, I think about kind of, oh, is this kind of too much to handle or how do I need to shift my day in order to balance this? And it's just something that's sort of constantly there and isn't going to change. And um, I'm fine with that. I think there used to be a time where I sort of, I wished, I wished I was more kind of, extroverted and more comfortable with it's not that I'm because I am I love being around people and I love my friends and I am social but it is that feeling of being drained by those activities um, and just being true to myself that I need to um, take the time to recharge yeah I don't know if you've read this book but it really had a big impact on me it's called the highly sensitive person no I haven't I will uh, I will check that out it's Dr Elaine Aaron but the Aaron spelt with one a but it's this idea that sensitivity we obviously we relay it more so with emotion but it's this idea that sensitivity is also like the senses that if you are a highly sensitive person they have like a mini test in there it's mm. like a true or false but it's that you take in sounds at a higher frequency and you take I guess lights and colors and everything and what it does it ends up fatiguing your body so someone who is highly sensitive may go into a trip in London and you're taking in like sounds of traffic and wild colors of lights and all these different smells and everything you're taking it at such an intensity that you need to decompress whereas someone might be like oh no that was just a fun day and I can go do more that's so interesting because that is so me I have this um kind of joke with my partner where I say I'm sensitive on the inside and on the outside yeah. because um I you know I find like smells particularly can be yeah. really overwhelming for me um I'm I've got various allergies so kind of I'm always feel like I'm in a state of allergic reaction yeah. and then um also it, I do also you know I take things personally mm. and like all of that stuff so yes that kind of sensitivity is definitely that's I guess that's kind of what I was sort of um, inadvertently getting at that it's yeah. it's more than just an introversion it's mm. this feeling of, of um, very easily getting overwhelmed yeah yeah I cannot recommend that book enough because it just provides so much information on like why you are the certain way and because she's a doctor she's done all these different studies mm. and yeah I, it helped me anyway because then it you end up coming to the conclusion you're saying that you need to really schedule in downtime to recharge and kind of allow yourself to decompress but 
yeah, that's my recommendation. What are three personality traits slash characteristics that you'd say you've built your life upon up to this point? The first one I think is asking questions and questioning things and kind of, and that kind of goes in various different ways. So quite a couple of questions I'm always asking are why or how and kind of really getting into someone's motivation for doing something. Mm. Um, So questioning, I think, is a really important one. Um, One would be listening and trying to listen. I have this theory that so many of the problems that we have in society are because we're not actually listening to one another and not trying to understand one another and you know without kind of having to veer too deeply into kind of politics but I think that's a really good area to see this play out that the surprise that was expressed in the media after Trump got elected, mm. after Brexit, all of these things, and talking about all of these curveballs that have kind of hit us from a, in a political context, I think those are so symptomatic of how we're not listening to each other. And so, yeah, so listening, um, and this is, you know, by no means to say that I think listening is a really hard thing to do, mm. um, but it's something that I, I do try really hard to... Um, just to be better at and then I guess that kind of leads to the last one which is um reflection and the the power of reflecting um this I guess connects to sort of my own personality I'm generally I'm not just introverted I'm also quite introspective and you know too much introspection isn't great good for you either but having the time to reflect either on a personal situation or kind of um you know read a book you know you read a book and then actually take time to absorb what it's meant um finding time you know as a freelancer just finding time in your week to actually sit down and and reflect are things and actually you don't even have to be a freelancer to do this but at the end of your working week think what actually went you know what went well what didn't you know basically getting off that hamster wheel and kind of thinking about are things on track for where you want to be going and and all of those things and um yeah so i think those would be those three questioning listening and reflecting yeah i um I feel like if anybody, the small chance that I ever get asked that question, I'm just going to direct them to yours because <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I um, how I feel about myself, which is so weird. That I've been drawn to you and that ends up being the case. But um, the final question, this is my favorite question. Many years into the future, your time as Anna Cordrea Rado is coming to an end. The person closest to you can only describe you and your time here on earth in one sentence. What would you hope that would be? understood me for who I truly was I love it that's amazing thank you so much Anna I really appreciate your time it's um yeah this is just all very surreal I'm a big fan of yours (laughs) I feel like so yeah I just really appreciate you taking the time thank you so much thank you thank you really enjoyed it great questions thank you very much wow that's a really big compliment coming from you thank you Anna (laughs) (laughs) all right let's say goodbye to everyone bye everyone bye